Genital disease can be a source of much anxiety and have a great impact on a patient's quality of life. In general practice, we often see men present with genital rashes and lesions. While sexually transmitted infections should always be considered, many skin conditions which are not sexually transmitted can affect the genitalia with a broad range of symptoms and signs. Indeed, with the exception of herpes simplex and human papillomavirus, the majority of genital dermatological conditions are unrelated to sexual transmission. In our podcast today, we will focus on conditions affecting the male genitalia, with a particular focus on non-sexually transmitted skin conditions. An important note, although we frequently generalise by describing our patients as men, it is also important to recognise that transgender women and other gender-diverse patients may have a penis and must be included in our conversations regarding genital skin disease. Welcome to Spot Diagnosis, a podcast about all things dermatological, brought to you by the Skin Health Institute in Melbourne, Australia. My name is Dr Annalise Willems. I'm a GP, medical educator and research fellow at the Skin Health Institute. And I'm Dr. Sarah Adamson, Education and Research Fellow at the Skin Health Institute. Also joining us today is co-host Dr. Aaron Robinson, Consultant Dermatologist and Director of Medical Education at the Skin Health Institute. It's great to be back again on this relevant and often complex topic, male genital dermatoses. In particular, today we'll explore inflammatory skin and mucosal conditions that affect the male genitalia, signs suggestive of neoplasia and malignancy, and recap presentations of sexually transmitted infections. To help us unpack this topic, we are fortunate to have two guest experts joining us today, Associate Professor Anthony, Tony Ball, and Dr. Mark Darling. Tony is active in clinical dermatology practice and is consultant to University Hospital in Geelong. He is active in dermatology teaching in both Australia and the South Pacific. Tony started the Male Genital Dermatology Clinic at the Skin Health Institute in 2003. He has many years of experience and expertise in this clinical area. In 2019, he published a book entitled Atlas of Male Genital Dermatology. Mark is a general dermatologist with a special interest in men's health. In addition to his private practice, Mark is appointed as a consultant dermatologist at Melbourne Sexual Health Centre, where he runs a clinic dedicated to the management of genital skin conditions and sexual health-related skin disorders. Additionally, Mark works alongside Tony Hall at the Male Genital Clinic at the Skin Health Institute and is also appointed as a consultant dermatologist at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. Tony and Mark, welcome to the show. To make sure we're all discussing the same topic, what does male genital dermatosis mean? So we're referring to skin and mucosal conditions of the anogenital genital region which includes not only the penis and the scrotum, but the perineal region, the perianal region, and also the inguinal region. I have to admit that I find these conditions quite complex. Do you have any tips on how to approach male genital dermatoses? One of the most important aspects of being a specialist in male genital dermatology is not forgetting our general dermatology skills. Many skin conditions that are commonly on other parts of the body can present themselves in the genitalia. These commonly include atopic dermatitis, seborrheic dermatitis, psoriasis, and lichen planus. Importantly, therefore, our examination of the patient should include all of the patient and not just the genitalia. These include signs that may be hidden, including the scalp, the nails, oral mucosa. 
So I think the first take-home message about genital dermatology is that common things are common and to look elsewhere in the body. Indeed, we'd always recommend a full skin check for all of our patients, and many of the signs you might see in other areas can help in diagnosing conditions that may also involve the genitals. One of the benefits of taking a thorough history and examination as well is building rapport with the patient and providing a safe space where they feel they can ask about a genital concern too. Many patients may present with a completely different concern, and then after the rest of the consult, if they're comfortable, they might then ask you about a concern they have with the genitals. So Mark, how would you approach a patient presenting to you with a genital skin condition? In managing these patients, good history taking is essential, and focus should not be primarily centred on sexual history, but much more broad, including duration and frequency of symptoms, impact on well-being and their past medical history, including diabetes, immunosuppression, and importantly, drug history, including topical medicaments. We don't need to rely heavily on investigations. By using good clinical acumen and history taken, we can often reach a diagnosis. Swabs are obviously important in some conditions, and rarely we might take a skin biopsy or perform blood tests. Now it's time for our first skin tip. In patients presenting with genital disease, it's very important to have a sensitive and empathetic approach. Genital dermatoses are a source of much anxiety in patients, uh, and indeed when this is explored, many patients will have an unstated fear of a sexually transmitted infection or cancer. Providing patients with an accurate diagnosis in many cases can help assuage their anxiety. So what sort of signs may these patients present with? There are a number of signs that patients may notice, such as redness, thickening of the skin, white patches on the glands, the foreskin or the penile shaft. Lesions such as lumps or ulcers, skin discomfort during sexual activities, colour changes or bleeding. And some of our patients may be asymptomatic and may have severe skin disease in this area without always knowing. It can be surprising how many patients don't always take a proper look or struggle to see the affected area, particularly in the older age group. A frequent presentation that males often present with, but are embarrassed to share, are symptoms of genital itch. What are some common causes of this? Well, firstly, the commonest causes of genital itch and irritation are the eczematous diseases. And so if a patient has extensive atopic dermatitis, that may involve the genitalia, but rarely exclusively the genitalia with atopic dermatitis. So irritant dermatitis is the most important cause of genital itch, which is often wrongly labelled. But the others are lichen sclerosis, psoriasis. I include genital dysesthesia, which is a discomfort or burning rather than a true itch but that can be also associated with itch, and less commonly lichen planus, candidiasis, and zoons or plasma cell balanitis. Um, allergic contact dermatitis is a rare cause, really, in my experience. And the word balanitis is often used as the commonest cause of itch, and you'll see that in European literature. But to me, that's not a diagnosis, that's a description. And similarly, balanopostitis, where there's redness, both the glands and the foreskin, again, is a description and not a diagnosis. And most of what is labelled, as I said, balanitis and balanopostitis is in fact irritant dermatitis. It's interesting you mentioned that, Tony. It sounds as though balanitis is what we would consider is jaundice, so a descriptive term. It's not actually a diagnosis. Is that correct? Correct, in the same way that anemia has to be qualified. So when you describe balanitis, you're saying redness of the glands penis. And when you say balanopostitis, you mean redness of the glands penis and the foreskin. And this is not a diagnosis. And people sometimes then assume that's the final diagnosis, which in my opinion is not. You mentioned lichen sclerosis. What's this? Well, male genital lichen sclerosis is firstly less common than female genital lichen sclerosis. 
but it usually presents with whitening or occasion redness of both the foreskin and the glands. And really, it involves other sites. And another important distinction between men and women that male genital lichen sclerosis tends to involve just the foreskin and the glands and occasionally the shaft, the penis, but the perianal region is spared, whereas in women, what we talk about, the figure of eight pattern is far more common. Now, the whitening or redness may be asymptomatic or it might be quite itchy or it can lead to marked tenderness and soreness. But the most important clinical complication patients will complain about is tightening of the foreskin or what we would call a phimosis. And that can be extending from childhood, so I'd call an extended a physiologic path, phimosis, to an acquired phimosis, which nearly is always pathological. And that causes discomfort with erections and sexual activity in males. Does it tend to present in a certain age group? Well, there are two groups that we see. We see those that... Well, nearly all infants cannot have their foreskin easily retracted. But by the time about 17 years of age, all males should be able to retract their foreskin, at least 99% can't. And those 1% that progress into beyond into their 20s usually have undiagnosed lichen sclerosis. But more commonly, it's acquired you know, in the 40s, 50s and 60s. We certainly do see it in younger men. And the difficulty is that in the urological literature, what we call lichen sclerosis with phimosis, the urologist will call it balanitis zoroticae obliterans, or BXO. Um, and then very rarely lichen sclerosis can involve both the urethral meatus and retrogradely track up the penile urethra. And in my opinion, this is controversial, I believe it's a pre-malignant disease. Generally, we all accept that female genital lichen sclerosis, untreated, is a pre-malignant disease with an estimated lifetime risk of squamous cell carcinoma of 5%. Now, studies around the world have not come to a consensus on the risk of men with untreated lichen sclerosis, but if a male has lichen sclerosis with an acquired phimosis, I believe the risk is about 1% to 2% lifetime risk of developing a squamous cell carcinoma. Tony, how is lichen sclerosis diagnosed? Well, lichen sclerosis, as, as we've said before, is still to take a history of the patient. Clinical examination is very important, and often you'll see whiteness of the glands, penis, and the foreskin. And then you note if there is an acquired phimosis. There's a sign which we call the wasting as W-A-I-S-T-I-N-G, so like a female, female's waist. So as you attempt to retract the foreskin, it causes a constriction band usually around the distal penis, and that is almost pathognomonic for male genital lichen sclerosis in an uncircumcised male. Now, because this is often a chronic disease and it may almost be lifelong, I encourage people to have a low threshold for taking genital biopsy. And at other times, males will have had a circumcision, and so you ask to see the histology of the circumcision specimen. And one of the reasons also of taking a skin biopsy, particularly the glands, is that we do see these men sometimes have early in situ squamous cell carcinoma or penile intraepithelial neoplasia and early invasive squamous cell carcinoma. My apologies to any in our audience who may be shifting uncomfortably in their seats at this point, but Tony, how does one do a biopsy of the penis? Well, my first point is I'd encourage doctors who are seeing these men to take more biopsies and not less. 
And really, the genital to skin biopsy is not really different from biopsy at other sites, except that the male patients are fearful. And so you should explain to the patient the necessity for taking this. It's not only to confirm the clinical diagnosis, to exclude if there may be associated in situ squamous cell carcinoma. And the skin of the biopsy, you must warn them on the, the glands penis will leave a small scar. So you must warn men of that. Could you please talk us through the procedure? Well, the first thing is to obtain verbal consent and part of it is explain to the patient the necessity why, why this needs to be done. I lay the patient down and then once they've agreed to the procedure, I actually proceed quickly. The longer you wait, the more anxious the patient will get. And I explain to them that they're not going to experience much more pain than biopsies at the site, even though they will not believe me. And I have all my equipment ready using some a 4O or 5O cat gut or vicral, monocrule, suture, whatever you're using. And you do need an assistant for this procedure because otherwise the patient will get more apprehensive as the blood pours out. And so I inject a very small volume, usually only 0.2 to 0.3 mil. Of usually I use lignocaine 1% with 1 in 200,000 adrenaline. I inject it intradermally with a 30-gauge needle. And I hold on to that 30-gauge needle because I shiskabob the, the biopsy with it. So I usually use a 3-millimeter punch biopsy you go through, assuming it's through the glands, you gently elevate the biopsy because you do not want to cause a crush artifact. You need your histopathologist on site to help you. I then lift it off with the 30-gauge needle, cut the base with scissors and suture with absorbable sutures. And then to provide some psychological support for the patient, I always wrap some gauze around and tell them to remove the gauze the next time they void and then to ring in five to seven days' time. Now, what surprises probably most people is over the many, many, many years I've done this, how men cope with this really well. And they nearly all say that was not as bad as I expected. So the secret is be confident, move fast. That's a good point about crush artifact, Tony. Could you please elaborate a bit more about this? Well, well, the reason I talk about the importance of trying to avoid crush artifact is because the histopathological signs of lichen sclerosis can be very subtle sometimes almost not there, or they can be quite marked. And if you crush a three millimetre specimen, it is very hard for the histopathologist to get orientation. How do we manage lichen sclerosis? Well, it's important with a male patient with lichen sclerosis to explain it is not a sexually transmissible infection or an STI and is not a penile cancer. This is an underlying fear of many patients who present to doctors with genital disease. I explained to the patient I think male genital lichen sclerosis is almost certainly an autoimmune disease and it's usually always confined just the genitalia. Only rarely do we see extragenital lichen sclerosis. And then you try to assess the severity of it and the important is F phimosis is present. So I gently try to retract the foreskin and sometimes males were not even aware that they have this tightening constriction. I then recommend, as in all inflammatory disease, to get them to make sure they're using a non-soap wash. And on the penis, I tend to use soft white paraffin, or commercially known as Vaseline, which is both a moisturiser on the foreskin and also a lubricant for sexual activity. Now, it's very important to use an ultra-potent or potent corticosteroid. Do not be a wimp with corticosteroids. So I use the most potent I can. I tend to use clobetasol. 0.1% ointment, and I get them to use it twice a day 
under their foreskin for six to eight weeks. That's a similar regime I use for women with vulvar lichen sclerosis. Then after six to eight weeks, I can reduce it once a day. Then I review them at three to four months to see what is happening, how they're progressing. Now, if this medical treatment fails, then you, we have to look at the other option, which include calcineur inhibitors. And the one that's most popular is tacrolimus, which is 0.1% ointment. Occasionally, you may have to use tacrolimus if the patient declines surgery, because the next option is to offer them surgery, and that's circumcision. Now, if a patient also has had a circumcision for male genital lichen sclerosis, I encourage them to continue using topical corticosteroids after circumcision. And the last thing with that is I warn the patient that if there is significant change to come back, because I've also seen patients post-circumcision, up to five, ten years later, developing squamous cell carcinoma in the penis, which was has developed subsequently, but as a result of the inflammatory disease. And when you're dealing with both male or female lichen sclerosis, in Australia we have commercially available at all pharmacists what we call diprazone IV. So it's beta, basically beta-methsone to propionate 0.05%. And the IV is the optimised vehicle. It is not on the PBS, but I've never found a patient who refused to pay the $50. Now, some pharmacists, I agree, will charge $70, $80. And I encourage patients, because one 30-gram tube of diprazone OV, yes, I'm using a brand name, is effective treatment. I just find clobetazole a little bit more effective, but diprazone OV is a perfectly acceptable alternative. You mentioned potent topical corticosteroids or calcineurin inhibitors. Could you give us some examples of which ones you prescribe for this? Yeah, the, the potent or ultra-potent topical corticosteroid that's commercially available in Australia would be diprazone OV, and that's a brand, and that's what it's known as. It's beta-methasone, dipropionate 0.05% in optimised vehicle. That OV is optimised vehicle, and that enhances penetration. That is a very effective potent topical corticosteroid. What is not available in Australia commercially, simply we're too small a population, is clobetasol. So I use a lot of clobetasol which is usually some people use 0.05%. I tend to use 0.1%, and you can get it compounded in an ointment base or a cream base. So you have to go to a compounding pharmacist. But for those who live in remoter areas or areas where there are no compounding pharmacists, this can still be done online. You can access compounding pharmacists online. But if that's difficult, at least prescribe diprazone OV, which in Australia now only comes in an ointment base, which for us is perfect. That's a great point about online compounding pharmacies, Tony. And the other point I'd make is uh, there seems to be quite a wide variation of prices that they charge. So I do encourage patients to shop around to find the compounding ointment that they need. And that is also true, Aaron, for any product which is off the PBS. So Diprazone OV is off the PBS. Now I've seen patients charge $50 for 30 gram tubes, and I've seen pharmacists asking close to $100. So you have to also be aware that pharmacists' price varies enormously. You mentioned phimosis being a complication. What are some other complications of lichen sclerosis that we should be aware of? Well, one of the commonest is simply psychological because some patients are very self-conscious. If their foreskin or their glands is white or red, they are frightened that their partner will think they've got a sexually transmissible infection. And still others are still fearful of cancer, the two underlying fears of patients. So apart from the phimosis, there's also genital dysesthesia, which I call 
an excessive sensitivity or burning, and that's exactly analogous to vulvodynia we see in women, extreme sensitivity. Then, as I mentioned before, unfortunately, lichen sclerosis can cause tightening of the urethra, and I've seen men with pinpoint penile urethras, and very rarely it can track retrogradely up the penile urethra, which is a diabolical consequence. And the last thing, of course, is the malignant transformation, which I believe is a reality, but it's hard to prove. And so you've got to watch for in situ squamous cell carcinoma or truly invasive squamous cell carcinoma. A common general practice presentation is genital ulcers. I'm aware that some of the causes of these are sexually transmitted, whereas others are not. Mark, could you talk us through some common causes of these? Uh, That's right. Ulceration of the penis can be a common presentation in our clinics. Uh, Occasionally, patients may report trauma to the affected area, which can trigger a break in the skin or an abrasion which leads to an ulcer. And history taking is important here, and patients need to be made to feel comfortable enough to talk openly about what might have happened. The most common cause of genital ulceration not related to trauma would be herpes simplex virus, which typically causes small, painful ulcers, often in crops, and that can occur in any part of the genitalia. Other infective causes would include syphilitic ulcers and some bacterial infections. Swabs are important here. And remember to look out for the recent outbreak of monkeypox virus, which can cause a variety of skin lesions, including genital ulceration. Non-infective causes of ulceration include aphthous ulcers, erosive lichen planus, lichen sclerosis, pyoderma, Bechet syndrome, Crohn's disease, immunobilis disorders. So quite a long list. Drugs can also cause penile lesions, including ulcers, and good history taking is really essential. Importantly, persistent ulceration can be a presentation of some penile cancers, and many of the diagnoses that I've mentioned would need to be seen by a specialist to get advice and possibly a biopsy. There's certainly a long list of possible causes to think about. Coming back to herpes simplex virus for a moment, how common is this? Gentle herpes, or as, as mentioned, herpes simplex infection, um, can occur on any part of the male or female genitalia. And herpes simplex is one of the most common infections in humans, and true rates of infection are unknown. There are two strains of HSV, known as HSV1 and HSV2. Both of these can occur on the lips, mouth, genital area, or perianal areas. And although HSV1 is more common on the mouth, for example cold sores, Trying to distinguish between the two HSV subtypes is really helpful in clinical practice and can cause a lot of anxiety and stigmatisation. Estimates of around 75 in every 100 Australian adults have been infected with HSV1 at some point and estimates of around 12 in 100 of HSV2. However, many people with herpes never have symptoms and don't know they have it. How do you distinguish herpes simplex virus from trauma on clinical examination? I think this is really a comment on history taking rather than clinical examination. It may be embarrassing for patients to disclose trauma to the penis. So it's important to have a non-judgmental approach and give the patients time and reassurance and the answer usually becomes evident. What general advice would you provide to patients who have been diagnosed with HSV? When patients are diagnosed with genital herpes, they're often upset and may have a lot of questions, particularly regarding when and where they caught it and how it will be and if it might be passed on. I think it's important to educate patients well and for them to understand that asymptomatic shedding occurs, and establishing the timeline of infection is very hard. Infection is really common, and although it's important to limit the spread to others, it should not affect relationships, and treatment is available. To reduce transmission, patients should avoid sexual contact when they have active symptoms, and try and use condoms consistently. I I think it's important that patients are made aware of when they have proven genital herpes 
that most presentations of genital herpes or oral herpes is in fact the reactivation of a previous infection and not a primary acute infection because this helps patients to understand that they have that the very partner they're with may not be the very source of their infection or but it could be somewhere way in the past. Time for another skin tip. In the case of herpes infection, many patients will want to know where they've acquired it from. However, the first presentation is usually reactivation of the virus and not the primary infection. Indeed, their primary infection may have in some cases been many years previously. Ever wondered what the Skin Health Institute does? At the Skin Health Institute, based in Melbourne, we aim to improve skin health for all our patients, and the research we conduct shapes clinical treatment and practice. We provide over 30,000 patient treatments each year and also deliver exceptional education programs for dermatologists, registrars and healthcare workers, specialist training for visiting international medical graduates, workshops to upskill GPs and medical students, and public education programs aimed at improving skin health in the community. The Institute also conducts clinical trials and research projects that are published and presented internationally. We make substantial contributions to the worldwide clinical care and management of skin diseases, skin cancer and melanoma, and are recognised globally for our medical research. We have multiple clinics for GPs to directly refer patients to. GPs can complete our online referral form available on our website at skinhealthinstitute.org.au forward slash patient referrals or email referrals to referrals at skinhealthinstitute.org.au. What's the medical management for herpes virus? Gentle herpes outbreaks are often self-limiting and don't always require treatment, but they can be very uncomfortable and treatment with antivirals such as valacyclovir is very safe even when taken in long periods. Initial infections are treated for up to 10 days with antivirals to reduce severity and duration of symptoms. Mark, how do you treat recurrent HSV? So recurrences can be treated with short courses of episodic therapy, started at the very first sign of symptoms. But when recurrences are happening very frequently, then suppressive therapy by taking continuous daily medication is often indicated. Suppressive therapy also has the advantage of reducing transmission to sexual partners by approximately 50%. People with herpes often switch between taking episodic and suppressive therapies um, according to their needs and circumstances. We've talked about itch, ulcers, and white plaques. How about causes of red plaques or patches to the male genitalia? Redness on the glands and foreskin is a very common presentation to our clinic. Um, as Tony mentioned previously, that we use the term balanitis or balanopostitis as a, as a descriptive term. And it can be a presentation of common skin conditions. And we mentioned already that eczema, psoriasis, lichen planus can present with redness on the penis, but frequently there may be no other signs of these more generalized skin conditions and we might need to look and think a bit more closely. Irritant balanitis is very common and this can be triggered by a number of things such as soaps, shower gels, friction, urine, smegma, semen, vaginal fluids and even medicaments. Often it's multifactorial and hygiene practices such as overwashing or washing too infrequently can play a role. Patients frequently use a number of creams on the penis by the time they get to a dermatologist and it's surprising how often the wrong cream can contribute to the problem. Trying to eliminate as many possible irritants and establish good hygiene practices is essential. Mark, what are the principles of managing irritant balanitis? Well, the condition is much more common in uncircumcised men and therefore the moist environment under the foreskin is likely to play a, a significant role. 
Uh, drying the area thoroughly after washing and using a barrier such as Vaseline can be extremely helpful. To treat the inflammation, we usually choose a, a mid-potency topical steroid. I use an ointment in preference to cream, and then we can titrate the strength up or down according to response. If there are signs of secondary infection or colonisation with bacteria or candida, then this should also be treated. If the patient is very sensitive to topical steroids, or if they are being ineffective, we might consider a calcineurin inhibitor such as pimecrolimus or tacrolimus that we've touched on earlier. Occasionally, a biopsy may be required to eliminate other causes, especially if there's no improvement, and we're looking for conditions such as lichen planus or even dysplasia here. And where an allergy might be suspected, patch testing is occasionally required. Biomitis can be very persistent and explain to patients that this may take weeks and sometimes months to settle is important. We may also recommend a circumcision in some very refractory cases. So there's another cause of red plaques on the glands penis that we might mention as well, plasma cell balanitis. Can you talk us through this please, Mark? So plasma cell balanitis is a, a chronic persistent inflammatory eruption occurring in the glands penis, and it's sometimes known as Zunes balanitis. The diagnosis is usually made clinically, but histology is sometimes helpful and we see plasma cells under the microscope in this condition. It typically presents with a shiny, glistening red or orange plaque that is often well circumscribed on the dorsal aspect of the glands, and it tends to occur in older, uncircumcised men and is usually asymptomatic. And there may be a corresponding inflammation on the underside of the foreskin, forming a kind of mirrored or butterfly-like appearance when the foreskin is retracted. What causes plasma cell balanitis? The etiology is unclear, but it's most likely due to a subtype of chronic irritant balanitis and maybe also related to poor hygiene or trauma to the skin, exposure to urine, and bacteria and yeast may also play a part here. Tony, could you please elaborate on some of the specific clinical differences between plasma cell balanitis and irritant contact dermatitis? Irritant contact dermatitis is almost again exclusively seen in uncircumcised men and you get a diffuse erythema or it can be mottled over the whole of the glands and the mucosal aspect of the foreskin. You don't always get that pattern, but that's the commonest. Whereas, as Mark said, plasma cell balanitis is normally a solitary orange or red velvety smooth plaque on the dorsum of the gland's penis, and you may get a similar kissing lesion, as we call it, a butterfly lesion, on the foreskin. And it may be orange and even has someone says what we call cayenne pepper, and the etiology is marks of, of plasma cell balance is unknown. To me, to differentiate that from in situ SCC, I always biopsy Zerns balanitis. One of the reasons is we always expect as medical students we'll see a lot of Zerns balanitis. Well, most doctors will be lucky to see one or two cases in their whole medical career. And so take a skin biopsy. But again, the histopathologist needs the clinical information because the histopathology is not specific. The question they have to answer, is there an increased number of plasma cells? Make sure it's not syphilis. And then you've got to fit the two together. The reason I take a biopsy is it's impossible to clinically say this patient does not have in situ squamous cell carcinoma or penile intrapathial neoplasia. You've mentioned biopsy with its role to exclude SCC in these presentations. What are some other principles of management? Just to emphasise, as Tony said, it can present similarly to a precursor for SCC and therefore if it's not responding to therapy, get a specialist opinion, it might need a biopsy. It can be a very chronic problem for some men and circumcision is sometimes required. You mentioned malignancies of the penis. How common are SCCs and other malignancies of the penis? So invasive penile malignancies are thankfully uncommon, but they're important to recognise. 
Um, both SCC of the penis and penile melanoma often present um, late, and they can be very aggressive. And over 90% of penile cancers are SCCs. In situ SCC, which is a non-invasive precursor to SCC of the penis, um, occurs much more frequently, and treatment of this condition can result in significant reduction in the progression to invasive disease, and in some circumstances is curable. This in situ form of SCC can have a variety of clinical presentations, and different terms are used to often describe the same thing, and doctors may be familiar with some different terms, such as penile intrapathelial neoplasia, bonoid papulosis, erythroplasia carat, and bone disease. And these are all terms that can be broadly umbrellaed under in situ SCC. Are there any particular risk factors for male genital squamous cell carcinomas? Well, there's, there's a number, and men over the age of 60 are more likely to develop this condition, although it can present in younger patients. Other risk factors particularly include being uncircumcised, the human papillomavirus, Tony's already mentioned lichen sclerosis, and patients that are immunosuppressed, such as having HIV, and smokers are also at higher risk. How does penile SCC present? Well, the clinical presentations vary, but the most frequent presentations are persistent erythematous plaque on the glands penis, usually with an irregular border. And the patches may appear warty and be multifocal and can occur on any part of the penis, including the foreskin, and indeed uh, also on the shaft. Typically, lesions might be asymptomatic and may be present for months or even years without patients declaring them. And suspicion should be raised um, when lesions are not responding to topical therapies, or such as topical steroids or antifungals, and a biopsy is almost always required to confirm the diagnosis. So, Mark, how would you manage penile SCC or in situ SCC of the penis? So, treatment for this condition should really be being directed to, by, um, to a specialist. And treatment may include um, topical therapy such as a mycomod or effudix, circumcisions almost always indicated, and glands resurfacing is sometimes required. If left untreated, um, in situ SCC can progress to invasive SCC in somewhere between 10 to 30% of patients. And invasive SCCs can present as warty nodules or plaques, which may become erosive or ulcerated. And they can occur in any part of the penis, but the glands is most common. And penile SCC frequently is asymptomatic, but some patients may report pain, itch, or bleeding. Surgical excision is a typical standard of care for invasive SCCs, and that would be under the care of a urologist. And they'll also do assessment for metastatic disease, often with scans and sometimes sentinel lymph node biopsy. Thankfully, with the introduction of HPV vaccinations in schools, we're hopefully going to see a dramatic decline in penile SEC, but this is going to be a few years away. In general practice, we often use dermoscopy to assess for skin malignancy. What is the role of dermoscopy in assessing possible genital malignancy? Well, the most important malignancy to diagnose is melanoma. And the dermatoscope or dermoscope surface emiluminescence was developed to differentiate primarily pigmented lesions. So in every day as a dermatologist, I use my dermoscope. However, the problem with genital lesions is they can all appear the same. This is true for men and women. Often what we're dealing with is a red plaque here. And I don't believe the dermoscope can help you differentiate those. Even a pigmented lesion of the genitals, what is most common is what's known as genital lentiginosis, or I call it genital melanotic macules. It's seen both men and women. And you have to differentiate that from a melanoma. And I think it's just unreliable to use a dermoscope in that situation. And I'd always go for a biopsy there. 
because histopathology in malignancy is the gold standard. The value of dermoscope in general dermatology is to try and reduce the number of unnecessary biopsies while increasing your clinical accuracy. So my advice is do not use the dermoscope in genital lesions, but in fact, if you're unclear, take more skin biopsies of the genital region. It seems that while dermoscopy is a useful tool in general practice, we should be aware of the limitations in using it to assess evolving genital lesions. What are some of the other benign lumps and bumps that commonly present on the male genitalia? Well, the common ones, which are just common variants or anomalies, anatomical anomalies, are still pearly penile papules on the glans penis, which may be isolated or one, two or three rows. And they tend to be one or two millimetres in size only. But occasionally they can be quite large. And angiokeratoma is a four disoprotomy on the scrotum, as the same as on the female vulva. They tend to be red, dark red, crimson, small spots. They're innocent. And ectopic sebaceous glands can also be misdiagnosed as warts. And they're no different from ectopic sebaceous glands or four spots of the inner lip, which if people roll their upper lip, about nearly half the population will have them on their inner lip. Seborrheic keratosis, in my opinion, are very common on the genitalia. They're extremely common in the Caucasian population to the point that when most Caucasian people get to 90 years of age, 90% of people will have at least one. So I see these on the genitals, just like we see in any other anatomical site. Pigmentary disorders, the most important would be vitiligo, and that's hypopigmented or depigmented, and the hyperpigment lesions are trying to differentiate what's an innocent genital melanotic macules. And we use that term because on the lip we call it a labial melanotic macule on the lip, which is obviously sun-related. However, we see the anomalous, the exactly the same lesions on the genitalia, which are genital melanotic macules in both men and women, which are obviously not sun-related. And of course, there's genital warts, uh, which we won't talk about in great detail today. Uh, was we have a whole episode featuring Dr. Mark Darling again previously in Season 2, Episode 10, which we'd encourage you to have a listen to. What would be a podcast on male genital skin conditions that doesn't touch on sexually transmitted infections? What are some other causes of these? Well, the most frequent infection that we encounter on the penis is probably candida. And although this isn't classed as an STI, candida can be transmitted between partners, but it can also occur in patients that are sexually inactive. And this is much more common in uncircumcised men and can cause erythema, both patchy or confluent, and is often associated with some buildup of scale or smegma. And it can be treated with topical therapy, usually very adequately. Mark, in your practice, do you tend to make a clinical diagnosis of this? Yes. Swabs are helpful in confirming if candida is present on the penis, but it may also be a bystander infection or colonisation on a background of an alternative underlying problem. The key message here is that if you've treated a patient for candida with antifungal problems not resolved, then move away from using topical antifungals. I usually suggest two to three weeks of treatment, and if it's not resolved, then reconsider your diagnosis. In patients with recurrent or proven candida, then consider sources of reinfection and possible cause of immunosuppression, such as diabetes. Time for another skin tip. If your treatment approach isn't working, reconsider your diagnosis. Don't be ashamed to ask for help by referring to other colleagues too. What other sexually related conditions do you come across? Another infection or infestation that commonly presents on the genitalia is scabies. And although this isn't a sexually transmitted infection, it's spread by close contact between partners or people in households. 
and it frequently affects the penis, the scrotum and groin, and it may indeed be the only affected area. The typical burrows may be present, but some patients may present with penile or scrotal nodules that are extremely pruritic. So we might have a chat about the strange bedfellows of general practice, chlamydia and gonorrhea. I see many patients distressed about whether these could be causing various genital symptoms. Where do you see these coming into male genital conditions? Well, that's right. Um, I think both patients and GPs frequently worry about common bacterial STIs, such as chlamydia and gonorrhea, when patients present with rashes or lesions on the penis. In fact, these very rarely cause skin manifestations, and their presentations are much more frequently associated with symptoms such as urethritis, discharge, testicular pain, or proctitis. An irritant balanitis may occasionally occur secondary to the discharge, but very frequently, chlamydia and gonorrhea don't cause skin problems. One exception is LGV, or lymphogranuloma venereum, which is an uncommon variant of chlamydia which can affect the genitals, the anus or lymphatics. It's much more common in men who have sex with men or in patients returning to or visiting Australia from endemic areas. The primary presentation is usually transient or self-limiting papules, pustules or ulceration on the genitals. And this can then be followed by a secondary infection presenting two to six weeks later with painful swollen glands in the groin and discharge and pain. And symptoms such as fever and malaise are often present and patients should be referred to a sexual health physician for management of this condition. And thankfully it's not common, but outbreaks can occur. That sounds painful. How does syphilis present? Well, syphilis is an, another um, sexually transmitted infection, and it's caused by the spirochete treponema pallidum. It can cause many signs and symptoms that may look like other diseases, and it's commonly nicknamed the great imitator. It's passed through direct contact during oral, vaginal, or anal sex, and testing is usually by a swab and blood tests. It's most common in men who have sex with men, but there's also been a sharp increase in the past few years of syphilis infections in, amongst women and heterosexual men in Australia. And there's four stages of syphilis, and the symptoms depend on what infection, um, what stage the infection's at. How does primary syphilis present? So in primary syphilis, usually a hard, painless ulcer usually appears in the genitals, but can occur on the mouth or the anus. And as mentioned, it's usually painless, and it can be hard to see sometimes. It typically occurs three to four weeks after the infection, but it can vary. And once it occurs, it usually settles spontaneously within a month or so. And when it's untreated, it can then lead to secondary syphilis. And these initial ulcers usually heal without any treatment after a few weeks. And how about secondary syphilis? How does this present in contrast to primary? So in secondary syphilis, the symptoms may occur two to four months after the initial infection and last for several weeks. It's typically characterised by a generalised rash with systemic symptoms, during which time it's very infectious. Systemic symptoms include fever, headaches, malaise, muscle pain, arthralgia, and lymphadenopathy. Multi-organ involvement can also occur, and the full systems examination is important. 90% of patients with secondary syphilis have a generalised rash, but this may be faint, may be very florid, and they may have red patches or papules. And mucosal ulcers, hair loss can also occur, and rarely you can get these kind of greyish-white plaques, um, which can occur on the genital area, groin, or perianal region, uh, even in the axillary areas or the bre- under the breasts, and they can look quite warty, and we call those condylomata lata. And a useful rule, secondary syphilis, is firstly the trunk of rush that Mark talked about. It was called roseola syphilitica. So if you think of pityriasis rosea, mm. then you should always think of syphilis. Spots on the palms, you should always think of syphilis. Histopathology is also important, as you said, with condylomata lata, because I've seen it misdiagnosed as piles or just simply 
external genital warts. And the other issue I'd make about syphilis is that syphilis is on the rise worldwide and it's most commonly seen in men, particularly who are associated, men who have HIV and syphilis. It's a very nasty combination, so you've got to look for it. And lastly, one of the most remarkable things of syphilis is that we've had penicillin for 60-plus years and treponin and pallidum still responds to penicillin, whereas our concern is with gonorrhea that we see resistance. Why there has been no resistance to syphilis is an amazing fact. And I'm sure many people are very grateful for that. After primary and secondary, are there other stages of syphilis? That's right. Latent, tertiary and congenital syphilis are all other are the other main forms of syphilis and, and management of these is usually under the care of a specialist sexual health centre or infectious diseases clinic. Diagnosis of syphilis is, is often made clinically um, and we've already mentioned the importance of doing lab tests including serology and swabs and as Tony mentioned, treatments with penicillin, usually by IM injection. And the other thing that's very important is contact tracing, and, and that should be done through a specialist service. I think it's time for another skin tip. To quote the words of an esteemed colleague, STIs hunt in packs. If you are lucky or talented enough to find one, you may well find another. In these patients, they should have a full STI screen. Tony, you mentioned HIV earlier. Do you ever see this presenting on the male genitals? Well, the important thing about the infection with the HIV virus is its subsequent immunosuppression. So once a patient is immunosuppressed, all sexually transmissible infections present abnormally. And so you may get more pronounced wart, genital warts, larger warts, more resistant warts. Simple things like molluscum contagiosum. If you saw an adult with molluscum contagiosum on the face, think of doing uh, HIV serology. The importance I mentioned about syphilis is very important, that in fact it just makes syphilis more dangerous. And Carposi's sarcoma was one, one of the original AIDS-defining illnesses, and theoretically it could occur on the genitalia, but that's, it's really just exacerbating sexually transmissible infections. Have you got any thoughts, Mark? Right, I agree with Tony. And the other thing we sometimes see is troublesome infectious conditions such as persistent oral candidiasis that can be a marker for HIV infection. I might also add that HIV infection rates have substantially um, reduced following the introduction of an improved access to pre-exposure prophylaxis. However, that obviously only protects from um, HIV, but uh, not other types of um, sex transmitted infections, sadly. My impression is though, that HIV is contained and, if anything, reducing in Australia, but that is not true worldwide. And so we're in a country with a large immigrant population. We should always be very acutely aware of any atypical disease to prevent of HIV in the same way that as dermatologists, we watch out for leprosy, which is brought into this country. Thanks, Tony. The conditions we've discussed today can have a profound impact on the quality of life of affected individuals. Mark, how have you seen your patients affected? Absolutely. I think this is one of the most important topics that we've, we've discussed so far. Um, all of these conditions can have a major impact on patients' mental health. And we see significant um, impacts on patients um, psychosocially and in their relationships. We see breakdown in relationships. We see patients presenting with depression, anxiety, and even thinking about suicide in some cases. It's really important that we approach um, patients presenting with genital conditions with uh, a large degree of empathy um, and being giving them the space to discuss the impact um, that it's having on them um, and 
giving patients the appropriate amount of time and addressing not just their skin condition, but also these other um, aspects to their disease. And so following from what Mark said, for me, one of the most important things that these men are treated seriously as patients, as we've alluded to, and these patients list as my most grateful patients we see in dermatology. Most of these men present with shame, guilt, and fear they've got a cancer or an STD. It's affected their relationships, sexually, socially, etc. And giving these men time and taking a history and please examine these patients. Even female patients tell me female doctors do not always examine them. They want to be examined and don't be ashamed to do that. Give appropriate investigations and give them a diagnosis and treat them appropriately and you'll have happy patients. I think it's time for another skin tip. It is important to be thorough in your examination, including a full skin check. With respect to the genital exam, it's important to thoroughly examine the, both the genital and the anogenital region. While patients might feel nervous, they generally appreciate a thorough approach from their doctor. Thank you, Tony and Mark, for your time and for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. We would also like to thank our co-host, Dr. Aaron Robinson, and the education team at the Skin Health Institute and Balloon Tree Productions. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Spot Diagnosis. Remember, these podcasts are not meant to replace medical advice. If you have a skin condition that requires attention, we strongly encourage you to see your medical practitioner. For listeners who want more information on this subject, a transcript of this episode and links to other resources can be found on our website, spotdiagnosis.org.au. Please share Spot Diagnosis with your friends and colleagues. Rate and review us. Let us know what you think. We would really appreciate your feedback and any suggestions. The Skin Health Institute would like to thank our exclusive institute partner, Melbourne Pathology, for their support of the Spot Diagnosis podcast.